I am excited to teach this morning on why I'm not a Mormon or a Latter-day Saint. I hope that you have a chance to, to tune in to some of this. I was not here for the week that Brent taught. I'm deeply appreciative to him for doing that. I, I want at the outset to tell you, I have a number of very good friends, and I have all of my life, who are Mormons, who are Latter-day Saints. I've got clients who are Mormons. I've got uh, acquaintances as well as good friends who are Mormons. I'm one of those people who in high school visited the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City, Utah, and actually filled out one of the cards asking them to come visit me. Not because I was interested in Mormonism, but because I wanted to try and convert whoever it would be that would come with me. Come visit me. So I just want to tell you from the outset, if you are LDS and you are listening to this message, I love you. I am uh, uh, impressed by the depth of conviction. I'm impressed by the family commitment. I'm impressed by the discipline that is shown by so many people of the Mormon faith. Having said that, I've spent 40 years studying it, 40 years talking theology and and, uh, lessons with others, and in that 40 years, I've decided I can't be a Mormon with all due love and respect. I can't be a Mormon. Now, I've got to digress for a moment. One of of the problems I've got when I started this series was I didn't contemplate speaking on Mormonism. And so if you look at the doors up there, I don't have a door for why I'm not a Mormon. So I kind of figured I'd shift it. (laughs) And we'll open that door on why I'm not a Mormon. One of the things that's very important to me as a lawyer is the issue of consistency. Consistency is extremely important because things should not change unless there's a reason. And I see this all the time in the cases that I try. I I, I tried a case uh, earlier this year. Uh, uh, I call it, uh, I'm in the middle of the hip wars in in my courtroom life. And this was hip two. The trial we just finished was hip three. Yes, I am a hippie lawyer. And, sorry. Um, If I start making those puns, I won't have a leg to stand on. Okay, um, okay, don't get out of joint. Okay, uh. Get out of joint, you can't go to pot. I'm sorry. Okay, this is my brain right now. I'm on jet lag. I flew in late last night from England. All right, here's the deal. Here's the deal. So I was trying a case, and and in, in courtroom life, there's a fundamental rule of evidence that says you're only allowed to get into certain subject matters If they are deemed relevant. So if I'm representing uh, John Clinton in a case. 
And someone wants to point out that John Clinton uh, used to be a police officer. That would come into evidence only if it were relevant to the issue being tried. Now, it might make John seem like a really good witness. Unless you've had bad run-ins with police officers, in which it might make him seem like a bad witness. But it's only coming into evidence if it's relevant. That's especially important about people's character. Blake and Brandon are sitting over here. I couldn't put them on the stand and say positive things about their character if I'm trying to prove that they acted consistently with it under normal rules. When you do that, if I put on Blake or Brandon and say, look, these are outstanding young men. Let me tell you some of the good things they've done. Then it's got an effect in legal terminology of opening the door to the lawyer on the other side pointing out the bad things they had done. It's only fair. So that's true for people. It's also true for companies. So in hip war number, battle number two, hip two, the company on the other side had the fellow who'd been president of the company on the stand and the lawyer was asking him, and this is a company that I'm going after, okay? I mean, this is not like, uh, gee, Mark's, hey, how are you? I mean, I got knives, okay? And I'm trying to cut this company, okay? Because I think they're bad dudes. Not everybody in the company, okay? I'm, but they made some really bad decisions. That's my view. So the president gets on the stand, and the president is asked by the other side, hey, tell us about how great the company is. And he proceeds to detail how great the company is. And they have slides, you know, PowerPoint slides. And they said, now, where's the company based? Oh, it's in this small little town in Indiana. Really? And they put up a picture of Main Street that looks like it's right out of Leave it to Beaver, except in color. Is this the main street? Oh, yes, small town Americana. Is this the local seminary? Oh, yes, that's the local seminary. Now, the seminary doesn't have diddly squat to do with this case. I mean, that fella on the stand, the president, I don't think has been near the seminary. I base that on me asking him some simple question like, uh, sir, you're familiar with the golden rule, aren't you? And his answer was no. Okay, well, that's not spending a lot of time at the seminary, <clears throat> which several of the jurors understood. And they put up a picture of the high school football stadium. Well, what has that got to do with anything? Nothing. And then they show a picture of the corporate headquarters. And they start taking us on a tour. And they show us the patriotic wall where the company's got this massive American flag with pictures of all of the, the employees who had fought in the Iraq war. Because they care. Now, I'm sitting there thinking this has absolutely nothing to do, nothing to do with this case. All that the lawyers are trying to do is make everybody think that this is just a marvelous company. 
But when they did that, they opened the door. Because it allows me to show evidence that might be inconsistent with their claims. Namely, that they pleaded guilty and paid a $124 million fine to violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act for illegally selling their material to Saddam Hussein and bribing his officials and henchmen and the doctors in Greece into buying their stuff. And so they were funding the very military machine that they were so proud of the patriotic wall for putting up there. They were bribing doctors and were convicted of that and, 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 and pled guilty to that. Bribing doctors to use their products. They did it in Greece. They did it in Poland. They did it in Romania. They set up bogus offshore accounts. Now the other side screaming and hollering, Judge, Lanier should not be allowed to show all of this. It's going to make the jury think we're bad people. To which I replied, Judge, A, they did it. They may be bad people. B, I would never have gotten into it if they hadn't stood up here and acted like Snow White. If they're going to act like Snow White, I'm allowed to show which character they really are. And the judge agreed. <laughs> the appellate court hadn't agreed yet, but the judge did. Consistency is extremely important to me. And so it strikes really to the core of, of how I think and how I analyze something. If someone tells me that 2 plus 2 is 5... I know 2 plus 2 was 4 yesterday, and I know why it was true, and I'm not going to buy the idea that, okay, well, sometimes it can be 5. I want it consistent, and I want it right, and I want it truthful. And so my biggest issue that I'm singling out with Mormonism as the easiest way to tell you why I'm not a Mormon is this issue of consistency. I find too much inconsistency inside the Mormon faith. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> Here's the Mormon view of, uh, that, that, that underlies much of what I want to talk to you about. Mormonism says that the Bible, as originally written and properly understood, is the Word of God and is correct. Mormons believe that the Bible's been corrupted to some degree, both in the way it's been transmitted and the way it's been understood. But the Bible itself is considered Scripture, holy writ, by Mormonism. The Mormons just believe that there are additional revelations to the Bible starting with the Book of Mormon. That, as it says in the subtitle, is another testament of Jesus Christ. The Mormons say that the, the, the Book of Mormon and, and the other holy writings did not and do not contradict the Bible as the Bible was originally written. 
They simply add to it. They supplement to it. The Book of Mormon supplements it. The Pearl of Great Price supplements it. The Doctrines and the Covenants supplement it. To give us more information. But that more information should never change the doctrines of the Bible. Properly understood and properly read. Properly transmitted. And yet they do. I want to start this by explaining to you some of the roots of Mormonism. I think Mormonism makes sense to me better when I understand how it arose. Apostolic Christianity in the New Testament, I think we need to understand the context within its society and history and how it arose as well. But when we look at the Book of Mormon and the historical context into which it came into being, it's very interesting. Now, I've had an interest in this, I think, in part because when we were young, uh, Catherine and I, I think Holly wasn't born yet, but Catherine and I, uh, yeah, she was born, but she wasn't old enough to count. I, and by that, I mean one, two, three, four, five. I'm a brother. I get to do those things. Catherine and I, and I'll bet Catherine remembers this as well. We lived in Rochester, New York, outside of Rochester, and we were near Hill Cumorah, which is the hill where Joseph Smith allegedly uncovered the tablets. So they have a big pageant there every year. And one year we went to see the pageant. So I, I grew up with this, this idea of not just Mormonism, but trying to understand its historical roots. Now, I'm choosing 1820. Joseph Smith, man, 1820-ish, okay? Joseph Smith was born in 1805, and he was 14 when he had his initial encounter, supposedly, with God in a vision. So 1820 is a good time to look. In the 1820s is when much of this took place. It was a different world then than it is today. It was a different America. And so I know all of us took American history at some point in our lives, but we're going to rehash it because it may not be so fresh to us. We had 23 states. We just added Alabama. So the, uh, 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 the, the flag just got two more stars in 1820. 23 stars, 23 states in America. President James Monroe. This is a time where you could go out and you could easily find a large Native American presence. There was still a lot of unexplored territory where the Native Americans were present. But there were still Native Americans interacting even in places as far west as Ohio. Which was really out there back then. So you have a large Native American presence. This is also a time where, uh, by the way, that is an 1840 photograph, 1846. So it's 26 years later after the 1820s. But that's an 1846 photograph of Philadelphia. One of the earliest photographs. Gives you a feel for the time. Here's, um, uh, that's 1840s. Here's one of the Upper West Side of New York City. Brent will be going there next week. Upper West Side, that's where, like... Um, 
you go there, that's pretty hoity-toity place, skyscrapers and all the rest. Here it was in 1846. Upper West Side of New York. So, you've got this. Now, in America, during this time, there is a huge religious awakening going on. It's called by historians the Second Great American Awakening, or the Second Great Awakening. And this was a time where there were preachers and, and religion and mass conversions happening. And, and uh, if you look it up on Wikipedia, here's the, an opening line about it. The Second Great Awakening reflected romanticism characterized by enthusiasm, emotion, and an appeal to the supernatural. It rejected the skeptical rationalism and deism of the Enlightenment. You'll notice those words in blue and underlined. If you spend time on Wikipedia, you know if you click those, it'll take you to another Wikipedia page because those terms are used and defined within the encyclopedia we call Wikipedia. Rationalism was the belief that we can, through our rational thinking, come to complete conclusions about all truth. We can start with who we are, and we can build just logically, the same way you'd build with brick by brick by brick. You can logically build and come to full truth on any subject matter. Some believed even the truth of God. Deism was a very prominent belief in the late 1700s especially. A number of our founding fathers and early presidents were deists. That means they believed that there is a God who set all of this earth in motion. And then has basically sat back and watched it. Doesn't intervene, doesn't have anything to do with it anymore. So God was responsible for setting it in motion. After that, he's, he's, he's distant and uninvolved. So in a reaction to rationalism, in a reaction to deism, there came that rebellious generation. You know how each generation tends to rebel against the earlier ones. There came a time where people were really looking for something that wasn't just Spocky in logic that 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 actually um, um, dealt with the heart and the feelings and the emotions that didn't have to see everything and measure it for reality, but took into account the supernatural. That God didn't just wind up this earth and let it run out on its own. But he stays involved and he, and he, and he's working with us and he's dealing with us and so we can see the supernatural. This is a huge religious movement that starts in the late 1790s, early 1800s and goes to about 1850. By the time you're in the 1820s, you're in the midst of it. And America is unique for this because unlike other countries, we don't really have a national church. England has the Church of England and Methodism, which really started as part of the Church of England, just a revival movement within the Anglican Church. They'd pretty much gotten rid of most of the Catholics, though there still were some. Germany, Lutherans, 
The French going torn between um, Catholicism and some brand of Calvinism or Presbyterianism at the time. Switzerland, very much a, a, a Calvinistic state at that point. But in America, we have the First Amendment. We're not going to have a national church. So it's like, hey, no holds barred. And you see cropping up all sorts of new movements and new churches during this time period. It was a fertile time for new churches and new ministers. You didn't have to be a, a member of the clergy of the Church of England approved by the king. You could set up your own tent and be your own preacher. You could, the revival movement was really going big. And as a result, certain issues are very prominent in the 1820s. Issues like, let's restore the New Testament church. Let's don't um, fight over whether the Baptists are right or the Methodists are right or the Presbyterians or the Catholics or the Lutherans. Instead of fighting about which denomination is the right one, Let's go back before there were denominations. Simply follow the New Testament. We'll restore the New Testament church rather than reform the church we have today. There's an entire movement called the Restoration Movement. The notable figures during that time period that we're talking about, the 1820s, include Alexander Campbell, Thomas Campbell, his father, Barton W. Stone, and others. That's the movement that becomes the first Christian church, the disciples of Christ, the church of Christ. Those churches today came out of that movement, the restoration movement. Another issue that was a big one was baptism. The Baptists were immersing. The Methodists were sprinkling or pouring Catholics would pour or sprinkle. What was the right method of baptism? It was a heated topic for church debate then. And still rages within certain circles today. Another hotbed topic were the revival meetings. Again, without a national church structure, anybody could set up. And I hate to tell you this. But religion can bring in gullible people. Because all of us have a hunger and a desire for the Almighty. He built that within us. And so you can find someone who comes in who sounds so cocksure of themselves and so assertive. That you take solace and decide that's one worth following. And there are people who, in the name of Jesus, go out there. And this has been going on for thousands of years. There are people who, in the name of Jesus, go out there as a money-making routine. Or an ego-pumping opportunity. These revival meetings, some legit, some illegit. 
But they're happening everywhere. People with tents. I got a tent. I'm going to do a revival meeting. Going into the towns. I'm going to do a revival meeting. That's just part of it. And one of the most picked over areas, it got labeled the burned over or the burned out district was Western New York. It was called burned over or burned out because the idea was so many traveling road shows, so many revivals, so many meetings that it burned up all of the, the available wood. In other words, anybody who's going to convert to religion had already been converted. There just wasn't any, any fresh meat out there. This concept burned over district, I didn't come up with that. Church historians didn't come up with that. That's something that an 1800s preacher said. By the way, the center of that almost, there in Genesee County, is the hotbed of where Joseph Smith and and Mormonism gets started. So this was an area where there were uh, intense meetings. Joseph Smith was born in Vermont, but at an early age moves with his family uh, to this area in New York, in western New York. And this this is what he grows up around. These revival meetings were also uh, 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 often accompanied by the leader having had a personal revelation from God. A bright light or an angel or God himself would appear to them. And call them into their new vocation. And give them the message that they're to preach. And you can read newspaper accounts. And I've cited some. But, but there, I mean you, you can find tons of accounts in books. Of people who claim to have had a divine revelation. And they can go out and set up their own tent. Or they can just live with it. Now all of that's going on within the Great Awakening. But I want to talk to you a moment about some science and knowledge things. Because to keep that historical context of the 1820s in mind, we need to talk science for a moment. You know, the DNA code has not been unraveled yet by Drs. Crick and Watson. I think they won the Nobel Prize for doing that in like... 58 or something. I may be wrong. But it's about then. Francis Crick and James Watson. I at least got their names right. But I think it's 58. Janet, is it 58? Okay, thank you. All right. So we don't have DNA unraveled. We don't, you know, Einstein, E equals MC2 is not around yet. You're much closer to the Revolutionary War. Then you are World War One or two. In fact, you're about equidistance between the Revolutionary War and the, the, the Civil War. So, for example, science still had a big area of magic to it. Divining rods were really big for finding water. You get that water by, you know, walking around and, and eventually, It starts quivering. I get the same effect with this. After about 45 minutes of talking, my arm starts quivering. I'm drilling for PowerPoint right here. 
needless to say, we now understand aquifers lace under much of our world other than massive rock formations and even under some of those. You just got to keep drilling. (laughs) In addition to, to science having some element of magic to it, was this idea of seer's stones. There were certain stones that were supposed to help you see things. See, science included, for many of these people, the world of angels and demons. And so seer's stones were stones that you could look at or look through, and they would help you perceive reality. One of the uh, uh, issues, let me go back. One of the issues back then was everybody was convinced there was buried treasure just waiting to be found all over the place. The Spaniards had buried it. The French had buried it. The Indians had buried it. By the way, I'm calling Native Americans Indians not because I'm not politically correct, but because that's what they were called back then. The, the, the Native American population, whoops, the Indians, they, 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 all of these different people supposedly buried treasure. Well, who's going to find it? We know that you need the Starship Enterprise, which has got the ability to re- scan and, and get that stuff. Okay. They didn't have that then, but they thought seer stones were the answer. So I'll use my, Water from Ken as a sample. So they could look through the stone or look at the stone and walk around. And a lot of them would put the stone in a hat, a stovepipe hat like uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln wore later. And they'd put the stone and they'd, they'd block the light out and they'd walk around and they'd look for treasure. Now the thing is, they'd have to not only look for treasure... But there would frequently be demons and and other spirits that would guard the treasure. So they'd have to be able to see through the demons as well, or the spirits. And so they would set up consortiums, partnerships, businesses, where people would come to them and say, Hey, um, I'll, I'll finance you to walk my acreage for treasure. And I'll give you, you know, I'll pay you to do it and, and you'll get this cut and I'll get this cut. And they'd put together big part. Hey, you want in on a business deal? Have I got a deal for you? Look, this fellow over here is really good with the stone. And I'm pretty sure I've got treasure on my land. Now, I've got to pay this fellow to do it. You come in with me. You agree to pay him X number of dollars a month while he does this. I'm cutting you in for the profits once we find it. And we've got these business units. Joseph Smith got sued, by the way, for fraudulently claiming he could use a seer stone to find treasure. Um, Native Americans. Science was unclear on those. Where did they come from? There were a good number of people that argued that they came from the Israelites. Because the Bible is supposed to give us all knowledge, so they're looking through the Bible. By the way, that's a misstatement of what the Bible is, but that was a common statement then. So they're looking through the Bible saying, oh, it must have been uh, from the Tower of Babel, or maybe it was from uh, uh, right over here 
with the um, uh, uh, 600 BC when some of these Israelites left and fled Jerusalem. So you can find newspaper articles where people are explaining how they think that the American Indians, the Native Americans, are actually descendants of the Jews. And they say things like, you know, the, the language, the, the Indian language is very clearly uh, related to the Hebrew language. I'm sitting there thinking, what? As someone who has a degree in Hebrew, thinking, what? These were people who had no clue what the Hebrew language This was like my dad who picked me up one day from Hebrew class. He's driving me home and he said, what class did I pick you up from? He said, Hebrew. Or I said, Hebrew. He said, interesting, I could never get that down. He said, you know, when I was in the Navy, they made us learn phrases. And I learned, I learned a phrase in just about every language on earth except Greek. He was picking me up from Greek class. That's what it was. And uh, he said, I, I could never get that down, every language but Greek. And I said, well, yeah, Dad, say something in Russian. He said, that's Greek to me. <laughs> now, <laughs> real handy. But that was the idea. Hey, nobody can understand Hebrew. Nobody can understand the Native Americans. Those languages must be related. Now, into this world comes Joseph Smith, born December 23rd, 1805. Joseph Smith comes into this world and each of these issues are issues that he comes in to speak to. And ultimately, Joseph Smith will tell the world that he's gotten a new revelation from God who addresses all of these issues. And that it's new insight. The Book of Mormon addresses these issues. The Pearl of Great Price addresses these issues. The Doctrine and Covenants addresses these issues. Church restoration. He says the apostolic church was corrupted almost immediately, and I'm here to restore the New Testament church. And so the the Latter-day Saints will not tell you that they're a denomination. They are the New Testament church in their minds. Baptism is a big thing. It's going to be by immersion. And they'll baptize for the dead as well. Revival meetings are what he starts having. And the first thing he does is he prints up his Book of Mormon with some financial help from another. And they start selling it at their revival meetings. They're selling it for like 14 shillings. As his business partner said to somebody who said, I only have 10 shillings. Said, I'm sorry, God told me to charge 14. Till he sold everybody to the 14, and then he went back to him and said he'd just gotten another revelation and he'd sell it for 10 now. Joseph Smith said he had a personal revelation from God that God appeared to him. And the angel Moroni appeared to him. And other angelic beings. And would dictate or translate or tell him how to translate these golden plates he'd found. See, he says he was told in a vision by this apparition to go out on Hill Cumorah and to find these plates. And he, and he opens up this box and here are these gold plates. But he doesn't follow the precise instructions for taking them out. And as a result, he loses them for the next couple of years. Until he finally learns to do it exactly right. And so he's got these gold plates. And they're in a weird language. 
And, and I've put a lot more of this information in the handout that we've emailed out to those. And if you're interested in it, uh, talk to Brent because I've got the citations and, and all the rest of this for what I'm saying. But he goes back and he, and he, and he, and he, he, then he gets his white stove pipe hat and he puts his seer stone in it. And he's able to look in and to dictate what the Book of Mormon is. And the Book of Mormon claims to have been an account by Jewish ancestors who made it to North America and become the ancestors of the American Indians. And so it's their account of how even Jesus himself, after his uh, resurrection, comes to America to preach to these long-lost Jews. So this personal revelation he gets and he uses the science of a seer's stone. That would not have seemed unusual to people then. That there was a buried treasure and that there was a spirit who was guarding it. And that you had to follow the instructions just right to get it. And then you had to use the seer's stone to translate it. That was not bizarre to them. Nor was the idea that Native Americans are of Jewish ancestry. By the way, huge problems with that once Crick and Watson get DNA and they figure out, no, they're not. They're from Siberia, 1500 BC. Would have come across through Alaska. And they're, to, to watch the geriatrics on that that are performed is an inconsistency issue with me. Am I saying that it's not possible that all of the Jewish blood got diluted out of the American Indians who've been tested because of da-da-da-da-da-da? Maybe, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I can't go there. So we have the Book of Mormon, which is a, and this is a, what it says in the introduction, a record of God's dealings with ancient inhabitants of the Americas and contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel. We have the Doctrine and Covenants, which is a collection of divine revelations and inspired declarations given for the establishment and regulation of the kingdom of God on the earth in the last days. And the, oh, by the way, that was another big thing in the 1820s. The end is nigh. And then we've got the Pearl of Great Price, which are more sayings and teachings of Smith, including his translation of different parts of the Bible. Because he's got to go back and try and retranslate parts of the Bible to make it make sense with the rest of the theology that he's put together. Because his theology is inconsistent with the Bible. So he does so and he says either this is a better translation or I've, I've uh, uh, clarified the meaning of the original or the original was corrupted and so I have restored it. And I'm sorry, but I can't go there. I've spent my life studying the Bible in its original languages and trying to reconstruct it. I can't go there. You know, the articles of faith say for the Mormon church, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. We also believe the book of Mormon to be the word of God. Joseph Smith said that. So if that's the case, I ought to be able to take those three books of the Mormon faith and they ought to align doctrinally with what scripture in its original would have taught on a number of issues. And they don't. So, for example, creation. 
The Mormon faith says that this creation of this world was not out of nothing, but rather the substance was already there and Jesus was one of God's children who refashioned it. All of us were God's children. We existed before we became incarnate. Because we were God's as well. God has children. God's, God, by the way, is married. God has children. And we're his offspring. And there was a pre-mortal council where there was a big debate that was going to be held about what are we going to do when we become humans and are on this planet. And they knew, God the Father knew, that Adam and Eve, the first two, were going to sin and something had to be done about that. So he was going to have his son Jesus be the redemption. Jesus' brother Lucifer gets all upset because Lucifer wants to redeem for the sin. And that's the enmity that's set up before the creation of the world. Humanity, we're embryonic gods. God the Father... Not spirit, he's flesh and bones. Just like you and just like me. We were his spirit children who by coming to earth have become flesh and bones so that in the kingdom afterwards, we can be like God in that way. Satan, brother of Jesus, Lucifer. Universalism, everybody really gets saved except for the badly apostate who basically are the Mormons who leave the Mormon faith. Conversion, it's not something that happens at a moment with a decision. It's a process. So many of the words that we use in Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, are used within Mormonism, but it's as if they have a different dictionary defining those terms. Steve Taylor is fond of saying, same vocabulary, different dictionary. That's a good description. And so, if you take for just, we've got four minutes. Okay, we're going to take just one example. John 1, 1. A verse almost every Christian is familiar with in this class at least. Miss Carolyn, what's it say? You're doing First John 1. Okay. In the beginning was the Word. I tricked you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Joseph Smith translates it as follows. In the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son. And the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God or from God. God gave birth to the Son. The Son was not God in the sense of co-equal. Now, if I didn't know Greek, I might have a bit of struggle with this. But look, the Greek is pretty clear. In our K, hein ho logos, in the beginning was the word. Logos means word. It doesn't mean the gospel preached through the Son. There is a Greek word for gospel. Euangelos. There is a Greek word for Son. Huios. Th those words aren't in there. 
And it says, and the word was before God or with God and the word was God. It doesn't say was of God or from God. That would be in Greek, the genitive case. It's not the genitive case. It's not there. It's not even close. You can't even try to get it in there. A square peg in a round hole is much closer fitting than this is. This is the difference between left and right. This is a huge difference. Those two can't coexist. So you got two choices. Either Joseph Smith's translation is wrong or our Greek is wrong. And what he saw through his stone, looking through the stovepipe hat, is right. The problem is we have hundreds, no, thousands of ancient Greek manuscripts. And we're able to look at them very carefully. And we're able to see where there have been changes to, to, to the Greek text. We can chart that quite well. There's not a scholar in the world who says this text has been rewritten. There's no question. We've got early copies of John. This wasn't distorted, miswritten, improperly transmitted. This is what it said. And so when I look at this and I think I can see where... Mormonism came from historically, but I cannot see where it came from scripturally. And then I compare the teachings, and the teachings make sense within 1800s and 1900s America. In a religion where they will change what Joseph Smith wrote as culture and society changes. If you're African American, you weren't going to be... In the priesthood until 1978 when they decided that things were different. Which makes you wonder if he really restored the New Testament church or if now they're drifting from what he restored. Interesting. If you were a Caribbean black, you were okay. It's an African American black that wasn't. And there are some serious problems I have with the Mormon faith. And I want to look at them next week in more detail and go through some of those categories and compare what the Bible says about humanity and what they do. Compare what the Bible says about the atonement of Jesus with the Mormon view. Compare what the Bible says about salvation with the Mormon view. Compare conversion. Compare who we are, who God is. Let's do that together next week. But for today, let's finish with the points for home. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I'm not God. Never have been, never will be. I'm not just an embryonic Jesus waiting to become what he was. I am his workmanship and he is transforming me into the image of his son, but not into being his son in the same sense. I'll never, I will never be God. Paul in Galatians 1, 6 and 7. I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. 
But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We need to be very attentive to Scripture. We need to study Scripture carefully. We need to understand it, lest we ever be drawn astray by false doctrines. I want to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ as my truth and reality. Because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 too, I would remind you brothers of the gospel. I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. That's the gospel for me. And if anybody comes to me and tells me that they've got something different, I'm going to reject it because I'm going to stand in Christ crucified, the apostolic preaching of reality. So, with all due respect, I can't be a Mormon. Come back next Sunday and let's compare some doctrines. God bless you. In the name of Jesus, Father, we ask your blessings on all who hear this word. Amen.